Gospel, chapter 28. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, it's always best to not only hear a sermon, but to read the passage that it comes from with your own eyes. And there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. If you just wave to them, they'll get one into your hands, and then you can listen as well and, and see as well. Uh, this morning related to God's Word. We're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And uh, we come this morning to a very well-known passage, Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. And then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them, that he had told them he would meet them there. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and he spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we just take a moment this morning as a church family and as a part of your family of Christians all over this world. And we acknowledge, Lord, the wonder and the beauty and the wisdom of your word even before we begin to study it this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of doing that, to turn to something that is going to outlive the heavens and the earth, that's going to have the final say not only in human history, but every individual history in, in human history. And Lord, we just, as that church at Thessalonica, they received your word just as it truly is, is the word of God. And we just acknowledge that. And just with great reverence and respect, Lord, and hunger, we turn to your word this morning with the request that your Holy Spirit, who is present here, that he would speak to us, that he would teach us, that you would take your great heart and your great mind, the things that dominate you, Lord, and that you would give those things a dominant place in each one of our hearts and our minds. We ask for that work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This passage of Scripture records a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples long after his resurrection from the dead, but just shortly before his ascension back into the heaven that he had come from. It occurred on an unnamed mountain up in the Galilee region of Israel, which is in the northern region of Israel. And we're told that the eleven disciples, which is another description of the apostles, that they were present. We're told in verse 17 that their response to Jesus, seeing him here and receiving the teaching that he gives them here, was uh, one of joy, and they worshipped him there. But we're also told that there were some there who were present, verse 17, who doubted. And we know that that can't be the eleven, it can't be the apostles, because they become quite convinced of Jesus' resurrection at this point, following his appearance to them in the upper room or in a room somewhere in Jerusalem on the evening of the Sunday of his resurrection. And even Thomas, who doubted because he wasn't present in the room that night, 
Jesus appeared seven days later with the other apostles present as well. And Thomas at that point became believing as it related to Jesus and his resurrection. And so it appears that the disciples here, as they received this, what is known as the Great Commission, that they weren't alone with Jesus at this great event, that they were accompanied by a, a larger group of disciples. And uh, this is probably uh, the above 500 brethren that Paul refers to in his letter to the church at Corinth, speaking of the fact that Jesus following his resurrection, was not only seen by the apostles and others, but by 500 brethren at once. Now, from the time of Jesus' birth until the day of his death upon the cross, Jesus lived 33 and a half years. And so he died on the cross, uh, kind of cut down, so to speak, absolutely at the prime of life. And that's why the Old Testament sacrifices were always sacrificed at the prime of life of those animals because they were all symbols of Jesus and what he would do and when he would be sacrificed in order to pay the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. And he, at the age of 30, he began his public ministry with the baptism of John the Baptist at the River Jordan. And from that time of the age of 30, he began essentially a three, three and a half year public ministry that kind of divides evenly by year. The first year was the year of obscurity uh, as he grew into fame. The second year was the year of popularity. They were ready to make him anything and everything he wanted to be. And then the third year uh, is encapsulated as the year of opposition culminating in his crucifixion. During the three years of Jesus' public ministry, he was accompanied by the twelve, by the apostles. They heard every teaching he taught. They saw every miracle that, that he ever did. And they had this literally unparalleled access to Jesus in all of human history in terms of physically, face-to-face kind of physical access. And they came to recognize him as the Messiah, the promised Messiah of the Jews and the Savior of the world. Peter encapsulated it best for all of the disciples at Caesarea Philippi when he declared to Jesus, we believe, when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, uh, for all of them, you are the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, speaking of the fact that he was the Son of God and divine. Additionally, they had put their faith in him for salvation and for the forgiveness of their sins, as Jesus had taught was necessary in order to know God and in order to uh, enter into heaven after this life. And so here they are, standing before Jesus. They're saved. They're forgiven. They have a personal relationship with God, and they're on their way to heaven. And Jesus could have just easily said to them, all right, that's great. I've accomplished everything that I wanted to accomplish. You, eleven, have been the apple of God's eye in all of human history. I came into the world to save you, eleven. I'm going to ascend into heaven now. And uh, you live out your three score and ten and die, and, uh, and I'll be perfectly uh, satisfied. But that's not what he did. Instead, he gave the apostles and the disciples a great commission, a commission to go out into all of the world and to make disciples of every nation, 
in the world. In other words, every single person who has heard the gospel of salvation that's found in Jesus and put their faith in Jesus for that salvation and that forgiveness, each of us that's been saved as a result of that, that has become a Christian, each of us then has the responsibility to make sure that the whole unsaved world is also given that opportunity. With the privilege of salvation, and salvation is a privilege, the privilege of a relationship with God, also comes a responsibility. And God unapologetically makes it a responsibility. With that privilege of relationship with God and the forgiveness of sins that has come to our lives because of the gospel of Jesus, what he did on the cross for us, and what he did in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, we then have a responsibility with that privilege to take the same news that has changed our lives and our eternities into a whole wide world that's waiting to hear that same news. Everyone in the world has a right to hear. Now, what they do with that gospel, what they do with God's message, you and I have no control over that. But everyone has a right to hear and to receive what we heard and we received, and we have a part in that occurring all around the world. And what others were willing to do, all the way from the time of the apostles, all the way down to maybe an aunt, an uncle, a parent, a, 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 a grandparent, or a friend, or a school teacher, or some Sunday school teacher, a mentor of some kind that introduced us to Christ as they took their place and were faithful to the Great Commission in order that we might hear the gospel and be saved. We have that same responsibility to do that for others. And this morning we want to notice three great things about this Great Commission that Jesus has given to us as his disciples, as his followers. First, the commission itself, what it is. Second, the absolute authority of the one who has commissioned us. And then third, the guarantee of success. And so the commission itself, what it is. The Great Commission is a commission given to Christians by Jesus to make disciples of all nations. What is a disciple? A disciple is a follower. That's what a disciple was in the ancient world. If you were a disciple of a particular rabbi, you were a follower of that rabbi. The word also means to be a learner. And a disciple of Jesus is someone who comes to Jesus and desires everything he ever said, everything that he taught, everything that he ever was, to then become a part of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. The desire for every portion of our lives to be impacted by his teaching, by his life, and by his work. Well, then how in the world does that happen? How do you make a disciple, as Jesus calls on us to do here? Making disciples requires three steps, three things. First, he speaks of going. Then he speaks of baptizing. And then he speaks of teaching. And so we see in verse 19, first, that going, which speaks of evangelism and the proclaiming the truth of Jesus to that part of the world or the neighborhood or apartment complex or whatever it might be that hasn't yet heard about Christ, sharing the gospel with people and and 
uh, that message of salvation with them, speaking to them about God's invitation to every human being. I never put people in a headlock corner amid some kind of a gathering so they can't get away from me and, uh, and, and hammer them with anything from the Word of God. I let them know about God's invitation to them to be saved. I speak of the need for salvation. I speak of the eternal consequences of accepting or rejecting that that, uh, that gospel and that salvation. But it's an invitation that God has made to sinful man. It's an awesome invitation. He didn't need to do it. Sometimes we get a little fat and sassy is in terms of our sense of self-importance in the United States of America, and we can hear this message over and over and over again and think that this was something that God owed us as human beings or owed us as citizens of the United States. He didn't owe us anything. It's his invitation. It's a privilege to become a Christian. It's a privilege to be saved. It's a privilege to be forgiven. And it's a privilege that we are able to access only because of the grace of God. And so it's extended in that, that kind of of a way and letting people know of God's invitation to them to put their trust in his son for the forgiveness of sins and thus be forgiven and have everlasting life. As Jesus put it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes or trusts in Jesus should not perish, but have everlasting life. I think it's fascinating, and I think it is very, very important for understanding this Great Commission to realize that the Greek verb, word that is translated go there in verse 19, makes that word go not so much a command, but it's a present participle, and it has the idea of saying going. So it's like Jesus saying, going, therefore, and make disciples of all of the nations. One translation has it this way. Then Jesus came up and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Therefore, as you go, disciple all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And what this speaks of very strongly is a lifestyle evangelism. And you, crusade evangelism is wonderful. Evangelism includes that. Missionaries going to foreign lands, that's a part of evangelism. But just as important, it includes each of us sharing the truth about Jesus anywhere and everywhere that we go in life. No amount of missionaries can ever reach this world. No amount of crusades, gospel crusades, can reach this world. The most effective way for the gospel to go forth into the world and to make disciples of all nations is for individual Christians who have personal relationships, meaningful relationships with co-workers, with family, with other people, those people then sharing the gospel in their sphere of influence. God's people are all over the world in every kind of place and neighborhood and city and situation and circumstance. So the whole the vehicle, the means by which sharing sharing is all in place. And all of us have a, a part in this wonderful privilege, in this wonderful responsibility. I think it's important to realize that 
you don't have to go to the other side of the world in order to fulfill this great commission that Jesus speaks of here. Now, God does call certain people as missionaries, and a part of their going is to go to New Zealand like the Bischoffs are going, and many others have gone out from this fellowship and other fellowships all through history, in, in this point in history. That's a part of their going. But very few of us will be sent on the other side of the world in order to specifically minister the Word of God and the Gospel of God there. The rest of us are to share Jesus with others as a part of the everyday coming and going in life, bumping into people, in, in, uh, it, whether uh, kind of randomly at a supermarket, and you get that prompting that I am to talk to that person about Christ. Oh, this is going to be weird, but you go and you do it, and it's amazing what happens, or, or whatever the circumstance might be. I think about uh, in early in church history, as it's recorded in the book of Acts, a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. He later became the Apostle Paul. The last person anyone thought would become a Christian in the whole wide world in that day. That might be you from Modesto this morning. You're in church. You can be saved. Paul was saved. But this Paul was just a madman at that point. He was so zealous against Christians and Christianity and uh, his rage, the original language that describes it there in the book of Acts, his rage towards the church, his treatment of it, was like a wild animal, the way that a lion would just tear a prey apart. And so he was uh, wreaking havoc upon the church and Christians in the city of Jerusalem. And the persecution became so great that it began to drive many, many Christians out of the city of Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us is that they then went into Judea, went into Samaria, went into the other nations of the world around the Mediterranean area, that as they relocated, they simply began to preach the gospel into the, in those places to great effect. And many, many people coming to know the Lord. It must be very hard to be the devil because you... Anything he does, it all ends up backfiring on him. So this persecution, all it did was just take this great cluster of disciples in one location that God wanted to get out into the whole world to make disciples of all nations. That persecution sent them out. But the reason that they were effective was because when they went out in their going, they simply recognized that in this place where God has placed me, I am here to share what Christ has done in my life and will do in their lives as well. And so this, this is evangelism in the fullest sense that Jesus is talking about here. Lifestyle evangelism, every day, every Christian evangelism. And then there's the baptizing in verse 19. Those who believe in Jesus for salvation, they've heard the gospel, they have trusted, believed the gospel, they have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Then they were to publicly express their faith by being water baptized. And one of the things that happens when someone's water baptized, it's a public profession of their faith in Christ. It is to stand there and say, I testify before Every realm, uh, seen and unseen, uh, the angelic host, the heavenly scene, the physical scene, men and women that are witnessing this great event, 
that Jesus is my Savior, He is my Lord, I have chosen to follow Him. And water baptism is a public declaration of His Lordship in my life. It's fascinating, I think, to realize that when Jesus called people to follow Him, He never called them privately. Every single time, He called them publicly and required a public stand of them and a public acknowledgement of Him that they were uh, putting their faith in Him. Jesus is not interested in any way, though it is in our nature, the natural man, the fallen man, it is in our nature uh, to play it safe or to go quiet and become a secret disciple of Jesus sometimes. But Jesus is not interested in being the Lord over a kingdom, a king over a kingdom that is made up of uh, everybody keeping a secret that he is their Lord. And I think it's, we look at the world today, I mean, there is no hesitation on anybody's part, at least in the Western world, and it's true of much of the rest of the world as well, everybody's come out of their proverbial closets. And I'm not just talking about homosexuals. I'm talking about any kind of anything. Anyone wants to identify with good, bad, whatever it is, And, I mean, people make these public stands for things that are uh, pure nonsense and some of it very, very harmful. And at the same time, there can be the tendency of Christians uh, to want to remain secret related to their faith and the gospel and a failure to share that when Jesus says, no, listen, everybody else is out and talking about what is most important in their life. And I want that to be true of my people as well, because we really do have something to say. And then that third characteristic of making a disciple there in verse 20 is the importance of teaching. Those who are born again, those who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior, the Holy Spirit has come into our lives as a result, then we're to be taught the truths that Jesus taught uh, the apostles. That is the Bible, the Word of God. And so this Great Commission is more than evangelism. A lot of people think of the Great Commission as just going out and evangelizing. It isn't that. Evangelism is the first step in the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to make disciples. And one of the ways, and the only way you can make a disciple is by teaching the Word of God. And so they had a responsibility to take all of these things that they had been taught by Jesus and then communicate those things to these new Christians. And so you don't have somebody who is a brand new Christian. They put their faith in the Lord, and then you leave them without instruction to fend for themselves and try and figure this out all on their own, where they're going to be greatly damaged as they attempt to do that. They're to be taught to obey the commandments of Jesus, which, of course, leads them and us into just this beautiful, holy, free, Christ-like Life, And so the important for us as Christians to realize that the commission is to make strong, mature disciples of Jesus. And that requires the teaching of the word of God and why we put such an emphasis upon teaching here in this fellowship. Now, a mature disciple is one who has become a Christian and then has become sufficiently grounded in the word. They know enough of the word to now be able to share the gospel with someone else and then begin to be a part of 
their early discipleship in the learning of the Word of God. We speak of maturity in spiritual, as a spiritual disciple. It's the same thing in the physical. We, we declare someone to be uh, physically mature. I do not say emotionally or mentally mature. But we recognize someone to be physically mature by virtue of the fact that they are able to reproduce themselves physically. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. We are only spiritually mature. We can only consider ourselves to be spiritually mature as we have a working knowledge of the Bible that is sufficient in our lives to be able to share the gospel with other people, how to be saved, and then to begin to teach them uh, the, uh, how it is to, to begin to grow and advance in this Christian life. And so this is how maturity is <clears throat> defined in the scriptures. And if I can do that, that's great. And if you sit here this morning and you say, I don't think I would be able to do that, and you've walked with the Lord for more than a year or so, then that means you need to grow in your knowledge of the scriptures here to be able to do that. Now, he speaks of all nations here. We read about it because most of us are Gentiles in this room. And a Gentile isn't a curse word, though it was kind of in the olden days. But a Gentile is simply a non-Jew. So we read this about making disciples of all nations. And we say, yes, of course, uh uh-huh. I mean, God loves the Scots, too, doesn't he? And he loves the Germans and he loves the Brazilians and he loves everybody and, and also... When we read about Jesus having a concern for all the nations and thus the peoples of the world, it's no big deal to us. But this would have been a jaw dropper to this audience he's speaking to. There, Absolutely, without a doubt, uh, that audience was exclusively Jewish. And uh, so Jesus was communicating that he did to them that he didn't come into the world to save and to make disciples of Jews alone, but also and equally so to save and make disciples of the Gentile world as well. It said that in Jesus' day, you, can, you see it in ancient uh, Jewish writings, but it wasn't uncommon for Pharisees in Jesus' day to wake up in the morning and the first prayer that they would pray to God is, God, I thank you that I wasn't born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. There's a little bit of arrogance and some self-importance, I think, and uh, pride related to that. But that was the attitude toward slaves, toward women, but also toward uh, Gentiles. Historically, even some Jewish rabbis believed and taught that God, the the sole reason that God had created the Gentiles, the non-Jewish world, was in order to feed uh, and supply the flames of hell for eternity. So we were just kind of presto logs for (laughs) for hell and all. And I don't fault the Jews. This kind of nonsense can, and we're certainly not talking about all Jews by any means, even in the ancient world, but this kind of thing uh, anybody can fall prey to. Additionally, it was sometimes taught that the Jews, that the Gentiles rather, were to be viewed as dogs uh, by the Jews because like dogs, the Gentiles ate what was unclean. They'd eat any old thing, bled or unbled, that'd be put before them. Uh, dogs, uh, Gentiles like dogs were uncircumcised. And by and large, you know, to be fair to uh, the Jews in the ancient world, the Gentiles did live 
an animal-like existence. I mean, spiritually dead, uh, meaningless, animal-like existence. And so you can, you know, jump all over the Jews, that portion of them that believe these kind of things. But their attitude toward the Gentile world wasn't completely uh, undeserved. Uh, Living apart from the gospel and apart from the word of God, his definitions of right and wrong and good and bad and moral uh, instruction and the way to be saved and all, uh, by and large, the Gentile world just simply obeyed their fleshly appetites, did whatever their bodies told them to do. That prevails to this day as well. And if I'm going to live a life just following the urges of my body, then that's going to reduce any of us to an animal-like existence, a dog-like existence. And and to be absolutely fair, uh, the sin of the ancient Gentile world was very terrible and uh, very, very gross. So when Jesus declared that he desired to make disciples of both Jews and Gentiles, He was saying that he desired to save and to sanctify every single kind of human being. From the most religious human being to those that live like dogs. Uh, And and the reason that Jesus wanted to save both groups is that no matter which group any of us belong to or some group in between, the Bible teaches that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so Jesus was basically communicating that he wants every single person in this world, no matter what our backgrounds, to hear his offer of salvation, forgiveness, and then the power to live a new kind of life. And so this commission is a great commission in its height, its depth, the breadth of its invitation, of its reach, the whole world, every person in the world, every person in this room, The old saying goes, there are none that are so good that they don't need to be saved and none so bad that they can't be saved. And so Jesus really is the sinner's savior. This commission is great also in its love. One of the things that's important for us to understand about Christianity, certainly as a Christian, but even if a person isn't a Christian yet, uh, is that Christianity is unapologetically a missionary uh, religion. Uh, It is a go out and speak to people about salvation and about the God that loves to save and longs to save human beings. And so it's a missionary religion. And the reason that Christianity is, is a missionary religion is because it's the only way to represent a missionary God and the love of that missionary God, again, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. First John 414. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent. That's a missionary God. He has sent the son as the savior of the world. And Jesus is the greatest missionary who ever lived. I remember in one trip into Israel, I was talking about Jesus with a Jewish shop owner. And uh, suddenly, you know, as he's, we're talking back and forth. And I'm very civil and very polite in, in that fulfillment of the Great Commission. But he realized after a little while that um, 
I was closing him in little by little. <laughs> and, uh, you know, from the Old Testament scriptures. And so he wanted to put an end to the conversation. And so he kind of threw up his hands and he, uh, you know, declared uh, to me that only Christians had a great commission and that the Jews didn't have uh, such a, a commission. And, of course, the Jews didn't need a great commission in the Old Covenant. God put their nation at the joining point of the three of the great continents of the world at the time, Asia, Africa, in Europe, all traffic went through Israel. All they needed to do was just be who they were, and God was going to bring everybody to them sooner or later, and converts could be made uh, to uh, become uh, part of the Jewish religion and then head them head into the rest of the world. And, and, uh, and, but as this guy spoke about it, he uh, spoke of the Great Commission kind of as if it were some bad thing or some burden or liability to Christianity or burden uh, to me or to us. But I'll tell you, it isn't any of those things. It's a privilege to share the way of forgiveness and salvation with people. And I tell you, it becomes a greater privilege the longer we walk with the Lord and the older we get and the worse the world gets and the worse the culture gets. I'm not an old man, just oldish. Fifty-six years old, I talked with a man who used to live next door to us in Napa. And I was out and I ran into him. And he spoke to me and he said, you're just a young man. I was trying to witness to him and, and a little bit on things. And, and uh, he said, how old are you? I said, 56. He said, you're just a young man. He's 91. <laughs> but I tell you, as you do get older and as you look around the world and as you look at the changes that have occurred in the world in my lifetime, it breaks my heart to see kids in junior high become the casualties of sin and wickedness and ungodliness and in bondage to that in ways that we couldn't in my generation until we were well into high school and sometimes well into adult life, the accessibility of sin today. And you see as people are made into these casualties today, and you watch, if you get a few, gen few decades in your life, and you watch all the different attempts that the world makes to put Band-Aids on and redefine all of these things and, and all, and yet the person remains the casualty that they are, and you realize the only hope is in this message, and that God will say amen to this message to a seeking heart. And you realize it's a privilege to share this hope because there is no hope for mankind in this life and the life to come apart from Christ and the forgiveness of sins that he offers and the release from guilt and the hope that he brings into life and the confidence of, of heaven and to know that eternity is, is taken care of. And so it's a privilege to not only share that gospel, but also in doing so to represent our God as a missionary God, to represent our God as a lover of human souls. And we can leave every person with that message that we share the gospel with. God loves you. He loves your soul. He's concerned for your soul. He values your soul in a way that you don't value it yet. 
And because he does, this is his truth to you concerning the salvation that's found in his son. And so this commission is great in its goal, great in its desire to see people saved and to forgiven and to be changed. The Bible teaches that it is the heart of God that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And every time we share that gospel with people, the way of salvation, we are communicating God's heart in that way. And second, let's notice verse 18. For those of you who are about just very alarmed that I'm only getting to the second of three points at this at 33 minutes, uh, just relax. The last two points are relatively brief or equally important. So second in verse 18, we notice the authority of the one who has commissioned us. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, admittedly, Jesus saying this, he is declaring that this task of making disciples of all nations, that this isn't an easy task uh, to accomplish. And uh, there's a lot of obstacles. There's a lot of physical obstacles. There's a lot of spiritual obstacles to being faithful to Jesus in this great commission. And so this statement is intended to be a great, great encouragement to us. And he assures them and us of his authority and his power over all of the obstacles that we might face in being faithful to this commission. And he's declaring that he will add whatever authority he needs to add to our feeble attempts to fulfill this great commission. And he will give the message as we will share it. He will give it in an authority that we can't even dream of as it relates to people's lives. And oftentimes we can get done sharing the gospel with someone and we think nothing's happened. I've never seen a harder heart in my whole life. I've never seen a stonier face. Sometimes people can actually get very hostile. I remember sharing the gospel one time in the early years of being here. And I was sharing downtown toward the DMV. And I came up in the summertime and up on a doorstep. There was a guy sitting there. And I began to share the gospel with him. And he said, if you don't get off of my porch, he said, I don't want to hear any more. Get off of my porch. And then he revealed a pistol in his hand as he's sitting there. So sometimes it can be a little bit weird, you know, as this kind of stuff. You think, oh, nothing penetrated. That was a good for nothing, you know, kind of waste of time. But it's important to realize that Jesus will add whatever authority, whatever power to the gospel that we have shared in order to make it penetrate the hardest mind and the hardest heart. Penetrate the most demon-controlled life. He will make it so. Jesus will add that kind of supernatural authority to the preaching of the gospel, whether we see it or whether we realize it. The Bible says none of the word of God returns void. The gospel certainly uh, doesn't. And what that does is it gives us and keeps us in a place of peace to realize we're called to share the gospel with the whole world, then baptize those who believe, and then disciple them in the word of God to obey God's uh, word. And, but what a person then does with that gospel is between them and God. It's not our responsibility. It's God's responsibility. He's in control, whatever it may look like to us. 
So he sends us out and he says, I have charge over every realm. I'm going to make what you do profitable here. And I think about in this room, some of you think about this. How many stories could be told in this room alone of the efforts that were made to reach you with the gospel, the truth of of God's word? And for long days and weeks and months and years, you gave the appearance that nothing was penetrating, that it was having no impact upon you at all. But you knew it was. You knew it to be the truth. You knew it to be the right way. But you didn't want to turn from this sin or that sin or some goal or thing you would dream in life at that point in time. But for anyone to look at you, it would look like you were a lost cause, that all witnessing and speaking to you had been a complete waste of time. But it hadn't been. That Word of God, the authority of God behind His Word, continued to work upon your life. Then finally, in verse end of verse 20, we see the guarantee of success. When Jesus said and promised, And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That statement of Jesus can just as easily be translated this way. Another translation has it. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you each and every day until the end of the age. I like that. I'm with you each and every day. Weiss translation puts it this way. And behold, as for myself, with you I am all the days until the consummation of the age. Wherever you read the Bible, when the Bible speaks, God speaks to his people of his presence with them, you can always translate it the same way. It is the guarantee of success. Anytime you read where God is speaking either to Joshua or to Moses or to Abraham or to us here in the New Testament, and he reassures us of his presence, you can put a little equal mark next to it right out in the margin and write, guarantee of success. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If we will take and be obedient to this commission, then there is the guarantee of success. He will accomplish His work of making disciples of all nations. And since there is the guarantee of success in all of this, the only way that we can fail is to fail to do it, is to fail to share that gospel, which is the first step then in making disciples. Sometimes we can fail to share because of fear or because of a sense of self-preservation. We don't want to jeopardize a relationship. Sometimes it can be a love for comfort and ease or the cares of this world or the deceitfulness of riches. We're too busy, you know, going after the physical and material realm that we don't give this the place that it ought to have in our lives and, uh, and so these are the things that can, if we push away from those things that will uh, keep us from sharing, then there's going to be success. God guarantees the success. And that success, as Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago, 
to a group of 11 apostles and 500 people there. That success translates all around the world today. And it translates right into this room today. The guarantee of success. There are people that are longing to hear this good news of the forgiveness of sins that is found in Christ. And when they hear, like us, they will turn and receive God's gift of salvation. And so the importance of this and the and acting out on that guarantee of success. That early church, again, believed that promise. Against all odds, the world has been reached. Our own lives included. And so this morning... All who have heard the gospel and have been saved have a responsibility to make sure that all of the rest of the world has that same privilege. With the privilege of salvation comes the responsibility of also letting other people know how they might be saved as well. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for this commission. And it really is a great commission. We thank you for the privilege of being able to be a part of it, Lord. We thank you for your work in our lives. We thank you for our salvation and our Savior. We thank you for the life that we enjoy every single day, a life of hope, a life of peace, so many blessings that are ours in Him. And, Lord, we want the whole world to enjoy those blessings as well. And we pray, Lord, that You would use this time in Your Word this morning to make any of us who have grown comfortable with silence or comfortable with leaving this commission to others, Lord, make us uncomfortable in that condition. Help us to look at the world around us and the relationships around us and to see the need, Lord, and to heed the prompting of Your Holy Spirit to speak and to share. And we pray that You would baptize us with Your Holy Spirit toward that end, that You would give us, Lord, the leading of Your Holy Spirit in this sharing of Your Gospel. And then, Lord, that You would also give us the words uh, to speak. Give us a love, Lord, Your love for the lost, Your love for this world, Lord, to remember our former condition before we knew You, how heartbreaking it was, how hopeless it was, how dark it was, and Lord, to then share the news of how to come out of that to others. And so, Lord, we pray that as we've looked at this this morning, that now by Your Holy Spirit, You take it, continue to take it further and further out in the practice in each one of our lives, Lord, that know You. We entrust ourselves for that, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.